Well, it feels awkward or unusual to say happy Good Friday, right? That doesn't seem quite the right sentiment. Uh, but this is a very special day. We acknowledge this because without a full appreciation for what we are acknowledging today, we cannot fully appreciate and celebrate what we're going to on Sunday morning. Now, you've may, you may have heard at some point that it, it, it certainly has made its rounds over the years, this recording of a, of a great uh, African-American preacher in America who uh, preaching in kind of, there's, there's a little bit of a cultural style, a little bit of a historical cultural style amongst some uh, in certain parts of the country, especially amongst African-American uh, pastors, and um, they get into you know, kind of a certain loop and a certain a certain rhythm, and, and they just kind of continue to progress and and crescendo as they go. And, and you may have heard the one that says, well, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Have you heard that one? If not, you need to look up. Look that up. You can Google it, I'm sure, on YouTube or something like it. It's Friday, dot, 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 but Sunday's coming. It's fantastic. It's wonderful because he just, he just talks about you know, how desperate the situation must have been for the people who were experiencing at the time, the disciples. You know, they, they followed Jesus. They, they came to love him. They listened to his every word. They learned God's truth from him and everything. And now here he's being marched off to the cross, and they're fearful. He says, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And it just gets bigger and stronger. And, and it's a wonderful thing to appreciate the, the desperation that would have been felt by those who did not yet understand the significance and the necessity of the cross and what it means then to celebrate what we call Easter, or Resurrection Sunday morning, that time when Christ rose victorious from the grave, as Paul has already told us, we will celebrate that on Sunday. We don't want this to be a long service. The point is to pause and reflect on the sacrifice so that we can celebrate the victory on Sunday morning. So I think this will be a relatively short message. It's structured more like a a devotional, so you you don't have notes, but there are some slides, so hopefully we've got those up there. Great. The cross. Those who don't understand, some historians, some secular historians who look upon Jesus as merely a man who had gained a following, a a prophet or something like that, will report on events in in such a way that would lead you to believe that the end result was a failure. Things seemed to be going so well. He had these amazing followings. He was healing people, apparently. He was feeding crowds miraculously, so it seemed. And they had great hopes, and, and it was getting bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, there was this sharp turnaround, and he was martyred. But that's not the way the Bible views it. That's not what we see in Scripture. It was not a failure. It was not something gone wrong when Christ went to the cross. It was an absolute fulfillment of prophecy. It was a completion of a plan that God had in mind from eternity past. It was absolutely a success. And it should give us great confidence as well as a great sense of gratefulness. And so I just want to look briefly at this passage that the epic youth so beautifully read for us this morning, Psalm 22. Look at that, Psalm 22. It's in the Old Testament. I'm preaching a Good Friday service from the Old Testament. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I hope it will, if it does it on the face of it. Psalm 22, written by David approximately 1,000 years before Christ. Let that sink in. 
prophecy 1,000 years in advance of the events. And yet, I think we will see that things came true. Now, David wrote his psalms, even those that we would recognize as messianic in retrospect, as we, as we compare them and see the way that the New Testament refers to them. He, he wrote out of, out of his own experience, and sometimes it was very expressive and very florid, and, and, and for him, some of these expressions were metaphorical from his experience. But what he may not have fully understood at the time was that the Holy Spirit was guiding him to write prophecy that was very descriptive of literal things that would happen in the fulfillment of them in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there is too much in one psalm that matches precise details of what happened in the, in the ministry and the passion, and particularly of Christ, for us to accept any one of those things as being merely coincidence. So I'd like to look today at just fairly briefly five key things. We've read the whole passage. The ladies led us through that. So I'm not going to reread the passage. It won't be redundant, but I do hope that you will have that passage open in front of you so that we can refer to some portions of it. So Psalm 22, I invite you to find a copy of Scripture, whatever form, whether it's on paper or digital, and have Psalm 22 in front of you and other passages I will provide for you on the slides. You're, of course, always welcome to look them up yourself. But reflecting back on Psalm 22, I'm, I'm going to pick out just five of what are probably just on the face the most obvious portions of, of this psalm that are, that are clear prophecy prediction of the passion of the Messiah, the experience of Christ on the cross. We could actually pick this, this psalm apart and spend significant amount of time in it. There, there's really much more. This is certainly a a tip of the iceberg sort of, a, of a, an approach to this, but I think these things at least are significant and we should look at them. So um, unfortunately, I know this is, can you read this, by the way? Can you see that from the back? Is that all right? Okay, good. Uh, I wanted to get it all on one page, and then I found out that I cannot figure out how to animate a table in PowerPoint, so I couldn't reveal step by step in here. So you got the whole thing right there, but we'll, we'll walk our way through it little by little, okay? So we're just starting, as you would, in the top left corner there and looking at the Psalm 22 prophecy that we see in verse 1. And that is this expression, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we have this verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And we have in the New Testament account in the Gospels the the groaning, and this very specific word-for-word -word cry that Jesus uttered from the cross. Now, if somebody was to be extremely skeptical, they might look at some of these utterances of Jesus and say, well, he was trying to mimic, he was trying to appear to be fulfilling prophecy by quoting the things in the Old Testament prophecy. He's hanging on a cross, and he's about to die. What would be the point? Of, of continuing to deceive. I mean, if he was just a charlatan, if he was just somebody who was just trying to get people to believe he was Messiah and to follow him, but if he knew he wasn't, you know, they say, you know, dying people tell the truth, right? That's kind of like you realize there's no point in lying anymore. So why would he take this moment to quote this messianic psalm as if somehow to impress people on the moments before he died? 
though I don't accept that kind of skeptical argument. Besides that, there are events, there are things here that have happened, that happened to him over which he had no control that also fit exactly the prophecy. But here we have this crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now just pausing for a moment, what is, the, what is happening in the, at this moment when Jesus calls out? Is, is he saying, Father God, why are you, why are you letting me suffer? I could think of other ways to express that, but it's this forsaken me, abandon me. What is that? Well, as we learn from further description in the New Testament, he bore our sin. He became guilty, though he was not guilty, in our place. And, and God the Father cannot look upon sin. He cannot accept this. He must reject. And so Jesus was expressing a much deeper truth than just, I'm suffering. Why are you letting me go through this? It was this agony of this rift within the Godhead, this tearing that we can't possibly understand that was taking place because Jesus was bearing the guilt of sin. And the Father cannot tolerate sin. So there was something deep and agonizing going on there besides the suffering itself. We see this in Matthew, as you can see those, those passages in Matthew 27, 46, and in Mark 15, 34, we have accounts from two different authors uh, who were around at the time. And we'll just look at the, the one sample of each of these. Matthew 27, 46, uh, where he says, uh, he accounts for us about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These exact words from the Psalm 22. That begins to tell me that there is a relationship between these passages, between the prophecy and the fulfillment in Jesus' experience. We'll look at the next one, verses 6 through 8. You'll look back in Psalm 22 with me, verses 6 through 8 says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And they make mouths at me. <laughs> That's an interesting expression, isn't it? But you know exactly what that means, right? You've, you've seen somebody, you know, who, you know, really dislikes somebody or you, you know, from across the room who's just kind of, you know, like trying to tell you what they think. Right? I like that. They make mouths at me. They're all, okay? Very descriptive. They wag their heads. And this is, this is their scorn. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him, because Jesus had said that the Father, earlier Jesus had claimed that the Father, God the Father, he claimed him as my Father, and he said he delights in me, that I came from him, that I do his will, that he delights in me. And so they're throwing it back at him, and they're saying, ah, so if you're really, if you're really the guy that you say you are, if the Father's really pleased with you, let him show it by taking you off the cross right now. It's a foolish thing when humans think that they get to set the terms for God. Atheistic professors do this to put Christian students on the on the spot. You know, there, there's a 
the story of, of a professor who regularly did this routine with their, with their freshman students where they would, you know, take out a wine glass, a delicate wine glass, and say, you know, if, if God is real, he'll stop this glass from smashing when I drop it. Well, who in the world does he think he is that he gets to determine the terms by which God has to defend his own existence? Foolish. Ridiculous. And here are these people following into a similar trap. Well, if, if, if he's really the Messiah, well, then God can just take him off the cross right now. Let's see it happen. Come on. Hmm, not happening. So they justified themselves by an arbitrary <laughs> standard. Well, we, we see this accounted for in, uh, in all these passages that are there, Matthew 27, um, 30, 39 through 43, Mark 15, if you can't read the small numbers, Mark 15, 29 through 32, and Luke 23, verses 35 and 36. And I'd love to look at all of them. I'm just choosing one as an example. So we're going to stick with Matthew since we're there just now. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43 says, those who pass by. Now remember, keep separate because they're so alike. Sometimes it's, keep, keep track. What we read before was written a thousand years before where he said, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, make mouths at me, wag their heads, say he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him for he delights in him. That's David writing a thousand years before Christ. Now we see the events Christ's experience in Matthew 27 says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Of course, he was talking actually about himself as the temple. So they totally missed that one right over their heads. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Here we have this exact fulfillment of the prediction of Psalm 22 and the actual experience of Jesus Christ. Now, did Jesus have control over what these people would say? If they were such skeptics and didn't want to accept Jesus as the Messiah, why are the exact words of Psalm 22 coming out of their mouths at this moment? They were fulfilling prophecy unwittingly. Because Jesus was suffering through the mocking. So first he experienced the sense of separation from the Father because of the guilt that he was bearing for sin. Now he's suffering the shame and the humiliation of people for whom he is dying mocking him. We see this expression of his of his own suffering at the moments of his death. In Psalm 22, in the prophecy, verse 14 says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that is melted within my breast. This is a dis- very descriptive passage. What does that mean? Well, I think we understand what it means when we look at John 19. Look at what happened with Jesus. John 19, verses 31 to 37. Now, since it was the day of preparation, which means 
the day just before the beginning of, of Passover, which was also the Sabbath. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now, this seems like a very unusual request, but they knew full well. Understand, in this context, the Jewish people all knew all about crucifixion and how it was done. They'd seen the Romans do this over and over again. This was the way that Romans very cruelly, very sadistically executed the enemies of Rome, people of whom they wanted to make an example. And they've seen it over and over again, and they know exactly how they do it. And very often, just out of, out of, out of evil hearts, they would let people suffer for as long as they would until they died naturally on the cross. And that could take days of agonizing suffering. But, in, but when they wanted to hurry things along, because of the way that a person survived, and I apologize for the graphic nature of this, but it's a reality that we must appreciate. They were nailed, you know, our English translation says hand, but the hand and their understanding kind of went all the way up through the wrist. And archaeological evidence shows that very often it was the nails actually went through here so that they could catch the cartilage and the bone connection there to hold weight. And then the, very often the, the legs would be turned sideways together and the nails driven through the ankle bones, both together, one through the other, pinned to the, to the cross. This was the position Christ was in. Other times they would contort them, put them on any tree, and take pleasure in contorting their bodies to nail them to different limbs in different directions, things like that. Evil. How humans can do things like this, other humans, I just bop up my mind. But it was... But it was by that method, but with their, with their body hanging from their, their arms, that naturally closes the rib cage. You can't breathe. You have to lift. So they would have to pull on the nails through their ankles and through their wrists to come up just to get enough of breath and then back to sag down again. Can you imagine doing this over and over again for hours, days, until they just couldn't do it anymore? They would suffocate or die from bleeding out. So in order to hurry things along, when they wanted to do that, they would just come along with a club and just bash the legs so that they couldn't push up anymore. They would just suffocate more quickly. Again, I apologize for how graphic this is. Put the hands over the ears of the little ones, maybe. (laughs) But, But this is the reality. This is what Jesus was suffering. And for many hours. But because it was the Passover coming along, the Jewish people didn't want this disgrace of bodies out on crosses all over the place. It was a very special day. They wanted those bodies gone. So they made this special request to hurry things along. So, but unfortunately, and this goes outside of Psalm 22, but there is, by the way, another prophecy of the Old Testament, that in the Messiah's bones, none of them would be broken. So it's interesting that what transpires here, we see in John 19, this request has been made. So verse 32, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. He just rammed it right up between his ribs. And at once there came out blood and water. What do we read in the, in the Psalm 22? I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. That would represent the experience of, of the cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And, the, you know, medical scientists have suggested that probably what happened there was it was the piercing of the, of the pericardium that, you know, appeared to have you know, water flowing from the sack along with the blood. They pierced his heart. And he who saw it, the soldier, uh, was born witness. Uh, well, he who saw it, Luke, uh, John, who was there at the foot of the cross, if you read the whole passage of John, you know that. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He's referring to, to prophecy. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So here we have, once again, this fulfillment. We have the experience of Jesus suffering and dying on the cross, which was considered... A tremendous shame for the Jewish people. Just another reason they had difficulty accepting and understanding Jesus as the Messiah. We have the piercing in verse 16. Verse 16 of Psalm 22, again, going back to Psalm 22, it says, Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, to our knowledge, crucifixion wasn't the practice yet at the time that David was writing. So this is an interesting choice of words if he was just merely reflecting his own experience. And yet, once again, evidence that this is, in fact, God-inspired prophecy. They have pierced my hands and feet, written a thousand years before Christ. But we see in all these passages, Matthew 27, Luke 23, John 19, we're going to read Luke 23, the fulfillment of this in Christ's experience. In the New Testament, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Now this is, this is hopping back a little bit before the actual event of the crucifixion. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And then in verse 33, they came to the place that is called the skull. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And everyone knew the piercing of the hands and feet that was a part of the crucifixion. It's interesting that they should oddly demand this one thing. They had other ways of executing people in those days. And yet here these these Jewish leaders, if they had read carefully the many prophecies of the Old Testament, should have figured out that the Messiah was going to be crucified. They could have put the things together, the piercing, the hands and the feet. They could have said, oh, we think the Messiah is going to be crucified. If they were paying attention, if they really knew the Scripture, if they were thinking about it rightly. And yet here they are, fulfilling the prophecy that they don't understand, that they don't believe about the Messiah, by insisting that he die in this very particular way, that his hands and his feet be pierced. 
I just find that an interesting irony. Well, lastly, we have verse, verses 17 and 18, really. But verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I wonder what in David's experience would cause him to write that. But here we have in the New Testament fulfillment of the Messiah, all four Gospels account for this. Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Let's look at John 19, verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Now, just pausing there, why this is interesting. Well, it was... They got to, if they were involved in the actual crucifixion of somebody, the ones that were involved in the crucifixion, it was one of the benefits of doing this ugly job that they got to basically loot the person that, that they were crucifying. People were often crucified naked. They, they took their clothes because cloth was valuable. And, it was, and so even to dividing up as outer coat, you know, ripping it into four parts, whatever, it's like you get a nice little hunk of cloth and you get a nice hunk of cloth, and that was a valuable commodity. But, the, but it came down to his, to his tunic, and this was really valuable. This is, I, I mean, even today you can imagine you know, something that's woven in such a way that there are actually no seams. There's complete, complete, you know, well, we've got, we got a seamstress and sewer here, and, and Rachel, that would be quite a trick, wouldn't it? to make an entire garment with no seams. You know, so this was really a special garment. This was a beautiful, valuable, expensive tunic that Jesus was wearing. By the way, I thought it'd be a little bit of a clue that it's not unspiritual for spiritual people to have some nice things. Just putting that out there. There are those who think that, you know, if you're the missionary, if you're a pastor, if you're, you know, you got to be humble. You got to be sure that you're, you know, driving a car that's just about dead and wearing clothes that's just about threadbare, and, you know. And otherwise, you're not being spiritual if you got nice things. All right, that's silly. Here they have this, this priceless, well, very expensive tunic. And they said, we can't tear that up. So we're, so we're going we're gonna to throw dice and decide who gets to take it home. So now we have Roman soldiers unwittingly fulfilling in detail an Old Testament prophecy from a thousand years before, marking who is the Messiah who came to save lost sinners. And so it goes on to say, this was to fulfill the scripture. It says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Quoting Psalm 22. So we know we're not out of line when the New Testament interprets Psalm 22 as messianic prophecy. We know we're doing the right thing here because it's even acknowledged there in John. And so the soldiers did these things. Well, as I said, we could, we could dig in for quite a long time. We could make quite a thing of, of the study just of Psalm 22, not to, not to mention the many other passages that have messianic prophecies related just even specifically to the crucifixion and the resurrection. This, and, and there are bigger and better books that have been done for that. But 
just for our reflection here today, when I look at these things, when I look at the description of the suffering, when I see it in Psalm 22, and when I see these exact details fulfilled in the experience of Jesus Christ, it gives me pause to think about how God planned so far in advance. He orchestrated these events to bring about the atonement for my sin, to bring about redemption of my soul, to make it possible for me to be forgiven though I'm a sinner and to have eternal life. It, it had to be a gruesome demonstrative death humanly, physically, I think in order for us to appreciate what Jesus was doing. When in reality, the greater suffering was probably what is implied in that, in that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rift within the Godhead over the guilt of sin was probably the much greater source of suffering for Jesus. But we can't see that. So if you wonder, how can, how can Jesus as a man dying on a cross save our souls? Well, it wasn't the dying on the cross itself that saved our souls. That was a demonstration, uh, something visible, something tangible, something we could grasp that, that would give us some idea of the desperate measures he was going to to bear our guilt, to pay a price, to pay the penalty, so that we might go free, so that we could be justified. So I think the cross is made necessary for our sake that we might begin to understand, but there's so much more that was going on at a spiritual level that we can't see. There was Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. And what transpired during that time that his body was in the grave, I think, was more painful. But we weren't able to observe that ourselves. So I just want to consider these little thoughts. Consider that Jesus knew about the agonies of the Roman crucifixion. He lived in first century Palestine, where the Romans were ruling and where they crucified people. He'd seen this done. He knew what went into it. He didn't run from it. He chose it for our sake. This was part of the plan, and he embraced it. And Paul recognized this in, in Galatians 2.20, reflecting on his salvation through the work of Jesus Christ, says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I've identified with, with Christ in his death. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have a new life in Christ. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I love that, that expression. Ever since I discovered it so many years ago, this was just blew up off the page for me when I read that verse and thought about it more deeply for the first time, I guess. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, he was, this is not a failure. The cross is not a failure. This wasn't a big old whoopsie. This isn't a, oh no, this isn't the way it was supposed to go. It's exactly the way it was supposed to go. Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into. And he gave himself up to it. 
so that I can have my sin forgiven, so that I can be made acceptable to God, so that I can have eternal life. What an amazing, unspeakable, priceless gift. Consider also that there was more to his death than the human physical suffering. In fact, we're given a clue to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus was innocent. He's actually the one person who lived a complete human life without committing any sin. And yet he ended up bearing all of the sin, the guilt for all of the sin, for all the other people who failed. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. This amazing transaction is made possible this, through the sacrifice of Christ. We who are completely guilty can be delivered by him who is completely innocent, because he took all of our guilt on himself and he offers in exchange his righteousness to us. It's like I'm wearing this horrible, dirty, ragged, filthy, feces-smeared, torn garment, and he's wearing, I don't know if royal robes even you know, convey to us, he, he, he's, he's wearing something from Saks Fifth Avenue that's like you know the top of the catalog. This is the, the finest multiple thousands of dollars worth of beautiful duds and saying, hey, can we trade? I'm wearing this hideous guilt. He's clothed in righteousness, and he offers a trade at no cost to me. He bears all the cost. So how do we respond? We must all gratefully Accept the truth of Jesus' own claim when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. When you don't understand all of these other things, that looks like kind of an arrogant claim. Right? If any of us were to, to stand in front of cameras, news cameras, and declare to the world, I myself am the one who is the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one gets to heaven except coming through me. For anyone else, that would be ridiculous. Jesus made that claim. There's no evidence that he was insane or that, or that he was trying to trick anybody. He willingly went to the cross to carry out his plan to deliver us, to suffer these things for us. If there is another way, if there are other ways, if people can get to God or to nirvana or to, you know, to whatever the ideas are in various systems, if there's another way, why would Jesus go through this? Why would he do this? There's no other way. And so we must be grateful for his tremendous sacrifice on the cross. And so I hope that we'll just kind of take a few moments this, this weekend to, re, to reflect on that, to, 
pray as you think about it and just thank thank God, thank Jesus for his tremendous sacrifice that made it possible for us to have life. And then when we celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, we're, we're celebrating something much more than just someone coming back to life from the dead. We're, we're celebrating the victory over sin and death, the curse of sin and its eternal implications, the complete reversal of human fortune, at least the potential for those who will receive him according to his terms, which is simply by faith. And we'll talk more about that and celebrate that on Sunday morning. Let's just pray and thank God, and then we're going to, our team will come, and we're going to sing one more song. Father, we thank you for your plan, for the way that you carried out your purposes, orchestrating them throughout history, giving so many clear hints, clues, indications, and in, in prophecy that would be fulfilled hundreds and even over a thousand years later in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that we are not an afterthought in your mind. We're thankful that you love us so much. And now we understand better what, what that verse means in John 3.16, God so loved the world. You, you love the world in this way. You loved us so you sent your son to die for us. We are grateful for that. Help us to be more genuinely and appropriately grateful. We cannot really grasp these things. It's really beyond our comprehension to understand what Jesus endured. We acknowledge that, but we pray, Father, that you would make our hearts grateful, that you would help us truly worshipful, especially this weekend, that we might celebrate with, with genuine hearts, not just a a special holiday, not just a special service on Easter that we enjoy making a bigger deal about every year and wear fancier clothes, but Father, help us to really grasp at a higher level than we have before the significance of what you have achieved through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.